0: Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Charlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking. No topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Business leaders can reasonably feel overwhelmed at times with the volume of software solutions in the world that may or may not be helpful to their companies. On this episode of Future of Tech, Goddard Abel, the co-founder and CEO of G2, explains how G2 has created a marketplace where business leaders can check out useful software reviews. Goddard also shares lessons he's learned along his entrepreneurial path, including learning a practice to increase his consciousness and to allow himself to feel and process his emotions. Enjoy this episode. The Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and Technology Center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs Technology page on LinkedIn.
1: So officially, hello, welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. Uh, Today, I'm pleased to have Goddard Abel with me, co-founder and CEO of G2. Hello, Goddard. Hey,
2: Avushai. Thank you for hosting me.
1: Pleasure having you. Let me jump in directly and ask you something that uh, probably many of our listeners would like to understand. Can you walk us through what is G2 all about?
2: Yes. And at G2, we're aiming to build the place we go for software. When we founded the company in two thousand and twelve, we called it a Yelp for Business Software. And the idea is as software is eating the world, G two is the buffet where you can find over a hundred thousand different business apps. And I think the amazing thing about our industry, there's been so much innovation. But entrepreneurs, software entrepreneurs have built purpose-built applications, you know for every business function, every industry. and G two is the one place you can go to find all those apps. And I think inspired by Yelp, what we've also added is peer reviews, because we thought the traditional model of covering software by analysts like Gartner and Forrester was dated. You know, it's more of a legacy publishing model. The analysts can only write reports every couple of years. And we wanted real-time customer, real user opinions to help other business people find, discover, and buy the best software.
1: So in other words, it's like a, a big market that everybody can opine and say, what's their view? On any given software, be it B2C, B2B, B2 whatever?
2: We only do B2B software, business software, because you know, I think, frankly, for like consumers, you know, there's like great app stores on mobile apps, et cetera, with a lot of reviews. And I've always been an enterprise software entrepreneur, so more in the world, you know, kind of where you are with Amdocs, where, frankly, before we started G2, there weren't sites where real users could share reviews, opinions. And our premise was that enterprise software... Is going to become more like consumer shopping. And you know when we started, we were already... And obviously, this has been accelerated by the pandemic. We were all shopping as consumers on Amazon, and it was really easy to discover products. And obviously, Amazon has always also had reviews central, you know, where you can see what do other peer consumers think about products. And it helps us make quicker, better buying decisions. And we just thought that was missing for our industry of enterprise software. And that's why we started the company.
1: Beautiful. And tell me, is it only products or or also services related to the uh, enterprise domain?
2: Definitely things like cloud services, Amazon, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud. So certainly cloud services. And we are starting to also get into implementation partners, for example, Salesforce, CRM Consultants. Because I think most software buyers, as you know, they not only need, a, let's say, a CRM software, they also typically want help from a consultant a service company to help them implement it. And so now G2 is also starting to do reviews of the service consultants, although most of our focus to date has been more on the the software, the SaaS products, or the, you know, the cloud services.
1: And the review, you've mentioned some of the analysts in the market, uh, and the review would be per product or will it be a comparison between... Uh... You know several of those?
2: Right now we're doing per product. So we have users share their real experience using a given software. And it's always in a business context. You also ask them, well, typically people will sign up with their LinkedIn profile. It also tells us what industry they're in, what business function they're in, what their seniority is. And for business software review, that's all important context that we then also share. And for example, if you're a large enterprise. You can filter the reviews and ratings on G2 to only consider other large enterprise users. And as you know, SMBs will have different preferences in large enterprises. And also by industry, it varies. You know, I know like Amdocs, you guys are very strong in telco, for example. But I think like a manufacturing company might have very different preferences than a telco. And so we try to give all of that context on the business software.
1: So a typical person that walks into this site... Can be a CIO, can be whom?
2: That could be a CIO, although I think we're, we've been betting on the consumerization of software. So we actually started more in CRM, so sales and marketing software. And that's, I think, where oftentimes consumerization started. And even I remember when Mark Benioff founded Salesforce, at the beginning, Salesforce was only serving SMBs. And I think he also changed the model where it used to be, you know, would you buy Siebel? and the big, heavy on-premise implementation, which oftentimes cost millions of dollars, took a long time. And I think Salesforce, when they started, they were also serving startups. I remember I was a very early customer, but there was more the model, hey, at the beginning anyway, the VBS sales could just sign up with their credit card, right? and they wouldn't go to the CIO anymore. And I think that trend has accelerated. And you know, I think the average company now, you know, even mid-market company like G2, we run over 200 apps, and our marketing team has bought like 40 or 50 apps, and they just buy them directly. You know, They build their own Martech stack just like sales builds their own sales tech stack, HR builds their own HR stack. And so that's a big trend we've seen is that you know the business function, the business line manager is buying their own software and they're not going to the CIO anymore. And so that's probably the, the biggest constituents we serve you know, is the, the business software buyer buying apps directly.
1: It's really exciting. Now, tell me, tell me more because um, let, let's, let's assume I'm a vendor, okay? I have a SaaS uh, app. So do I place it in, in G2 or do I need someone else to opine on it for me to appear there? What's the process?
2: Any founder, any company can set up their own profile. And uh, and obviously, we do have a research team that just validates it. Yeah, to make sure, hey, this is a real company, it's a real person, but anyone can submit it. We quickly review it and then it's live. And because frankly, also as a software entrepreneur, I was frustrated by the status quo with the analysts because I remember my first company, Big Machines, It was CPQ software, but I think I remember it took us nine years to get in a Gartner report, 12 years to become the leader. That was very frustrating. And they always had criteria, you know, like you have to have at least 20 million in revenue. You have to serve X number of enterprise companies. And I think as an entrepreneur, that kind of felt unfair. And frankly, we had to pay them to get their time, to influence them, to become the leader. And so we wanted a very democratic model where anyone, and this is true today on G2, anyone can list their software. And if you have the most high quality reviews, you'll be number one. And one company, somewhat frustrating, but well, great. Like Slack has been number one on G two for years, and Slack, I think in tech we all know about it, right? And and they have thousands of great reviews because users love Slack, you know. But they're number one on G two, and then we do offer vendors premium marketing solutions if they want to reach our audience better. But for example, Slack, you know, they're number one on G two, always have been, and they were never a customer. And so we wanted to make our model: hey, it's very democratic, it's very fair. If you have the most happy customers, and they speak for you you'll be number one on our site. So that's the model. And it does really help startups get going because they can just list and, and start encouraging their customers to leave reviews. And, you know, they can be immediately included in our ratings.
1: So how do you validate if someone enters his name, not just, you know, that the, there is such a company, but whom are the people that are, you know, vouching for this software? Is there a mechanism to make sure that it's not, you know, his his son, his daughter, and a few cousins are, are tapping in and saying this is great software? How, how do you make sure that the reviews are concrete and real?
2: We do do our best to make sure all the reviews are authentic and real, and it does start by typically we'll ask the user to sign up with their LinkedIn profile. And, uh, and I, obviously, that's what I did. You know, I checked you out on LinkedIn right before this call. I think that's what we all do now, especially in tech. You know, it's our identity, but it also allows me to see, hey, this is a real person. Yeah, you because know, you can see do they have real connections or not? What company do they work for? And that's also a key thing, because if you went to our site and tried to review Amdocs, for example, you know, we would automatically flag that and prevent that. So people can't review their own company. They can't review their competitors. And we make sure they're a real business professional, you know, that has relevant experience for using this kind of software. And and we also ask for a work email. Again, this is only work and business apps. You know, so if someone just signs up with Yahoo or Gmail email and there's no professional identity, then we won't accept that review. And we do reject about 30 percent of reviews that are submitted, either because we suspect there might be fraud or they're just not of high quality. So we want it to be relevant for business professionals. And in that way, we probably more like LinkedIn, right? Not like Facebook. We want to be a professional community and have real business people giving their peers real advice.
1: Now, in a traditional, let's call it uh, analyst firm, you would need also professional to evaluate the solution. And as, as you rightfully said, it takes weeks or months or years sometimes to, to get into those lists. What about your stuff? Do you need experts or, or with you, it's just you know, uh, the operational aspects of how, how to make this work?
2: No, we also need experts. So at G2, we have a research team and they do work you know, with the software buyers and the software vendors to define our taxonomy of categories, for example. Because as you also know, business software comes in many flavors, many categories. We have over 2000 different categories of software on G2. And so what our research team does, they work both with the software buyer and the seller to also define different criteria for each category. So there is a list typically of 20 to 40 software features unique to that category. So in a category like CRM, That would be things like account management, contact management, strength of platform, customization, integration, but they'll define, let's say, 20 to 40 key feature sets that kind of software should offer. And then I think what is different than the model though, our analysts don't then try to evaluate the software themselves once they've defined the criteria for a category and they make sure that every vendor at least offers that software that has those features to be in that category. So they vet, they define the taxonomy. They make sure all the vendors listed in that category actually offer full solutions in that category, but then they leave it up to the crowd of users to rate how well the software does on each of those features and functions. And that's probably the difference, you know, is that we define a taxonomy, the structure, but we don't do the evaluation ourselves. We let the users do the evaluation.
1: One more question about this, and then I would like to uh, pause for a second and, and take a detour. But as a completion for this line of thought, You've mentioned those experts. How do you retain them? How do you how do you make sure that they are coming to you as opposed to the world of wonders outside with all those startups and and uh, cool companies? And
2: no, and I think that's a challenge for everyone in tech. You know, and we have about seven hundred employees at G two, including our research team of fifty experts. And you're right. I think right now in tech, everyone probably gets multiple recruiter outreaches and job inquiries. But I think we we focus a lot on our culture. And you know, G two, we've defined our P culture. And peak is a mnemonic that stands for performance, entrepreneurship, authenticity, and kindness. We also use peak as a metaphor for, you know, what's your professional peak? What mountain are you looking to climb professionally? And so then we try to align all of our team members, including our research team, our experts to say, hey, G2 is the best company where I can climb my next professional peak. And hopefully we align with them on that. And frankly, if we don't, then they will leave and go elsewhere. But, But we've done a pretty good job retaining our team.
1: So we'll speak more about culture in, in a second, but now, as, a, as I promised you, a quick detour. So you're now ag 2 you've, you've mentioned big machines, which I'd like to touch maybe later on also, but tell me, how did it all start? You know, how did you find yourself even before entrepreneurship? How, how did you first land in technology and started your career?
2: Actually, my father was an entrepreneur, but he was in the pump manufacturing industry. So a very different industry. So I kind of grew up around entrepreneurship. And frankly, I went to college to study mechanical engineering at MIT because I think I thought my father wanted me to go into the pump business. So I wanted to make sure I'd be ready. You know, But obviously at MIT, I started getting exposed. I remember actually I did a master's thesis where I wrote a numerical simulation software that ran back on a Cray computer. And this was still in the early 90s. But at MIT, I was just surrounded by tech. I, I then went a different route. My first job was a consultant. You know, I spent three years at McKinsey. I wanted to learn more of the business side of you know, the world. And then, uh, but then I wound up going to business school at Stanford in the late nineties. And that was the midst of the dot-com boom. And I think you remember that era, but, you know, but that was like when Larry and Sergey were starting Google at Stanford and, you know, we were just surrounded by tech and all these entrepreneurs. And that's where I kind of got diverted. And I started getting involved in startups back then. And, and
1: I've been building software companies ever since. So you started with big machines or, or, or with something else?
2: Well, Big Machine is the first company I started, but while I was at Stanford, I met two Stanford computer science students, and my joke is always too bad it wasn't Larry and Sergey, you know, who were starting Google, but I met two other ones, and and they were building something much more mundane, you know, it was kind of a very early time and expense app, and maybe a little bit like what Concur became, and I just, they needed a utility business guy, you know, they were writing this great new app, but they didn't know how to build a business, and frankly, I didn't either, but, you know, but since I was in a business school... I started trying to help them. And then we were quickly acquired by a bigger startup, Niku. And that had been started by an entrepreneur, Farzad Debachi He worked for Larry Ellison at Oracle, running their new media division. And so he was able to raise like 200 million bucks. He acquired our little startup. that's probably what you call that we hired today. And then I just kind of learned from him. And he made it look amazingly easy. You know, like in two years, he raised like $200 million, took the company public. And this was still dot-com boom days. And I'm like, wow, this would be a perfect time to start my own company. And so that's, that's when we decided to start Big Machines.
1: And from Big Machines, you moved to what?
2: Well, and Big Machines was a long struggle, but you know, eventually the company was a good success. It was acquired by Oracle. Around the time Big Machines was being acquired, you know, we we left, and I thought about, hey, what do we really want to do next? And I had a bit of a break, you know, where I was just more home with my wife and kids. And but then I, you know, kind of felt sad, and I really missed missed our team, missed building a company. And so that's when we decided to build another one. And and that next company was Big Machines. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, we just saw the challenges being a software entrepreneur. We saw how hard a time our customers had discovering apps like ours. And I always remember we had this big customer at big machines called Rolls Royce, and they made truly big machines, big steam turbines for power generation applications. And I remember they eventually discovered Big machine software. One of the things they said to us, "Wow, we wish we'd found this two years ago because we've been trying to build this app in house, and we didn't even know that CPQ vendors like you existed." And so all of that, plus our frustration with the traditional analysts, like that all inspired G2, where we said, hey, let's create a site where, you know, all companies around the world can discover the best apps and they can, in real time, based on real peer advice, you know, find the best software. So that, that's kind of what we set out to build next.
1: Nice. And, and why, why do you think that this is the time for a company such as G2? What have changed that allowed your uh, great success becoming such a successful company?
2: I think the overall trend that's really helping us is software eating the world. Since the 10 years since we started, the software industry is growing 15, 20% every year. And so the number of apps, I think at the beginning, we maybe had a thousand software products listed on G 2 Now there's over a hundred thousand. So I think there's just tremendous momentum in our industry and in cloud and SaaS and all of it. And I don't think we're done, right? I think it's going to continue another 20 or 30 years with AI and you know everything that's happening now. So, uh, so I think that's, that's the one big trend, and I think the other one is we have. I think we've built a good brand in our industry, where you know more and more software buyers are coming to G2.com to discover apps. And I also think most of the software vendors are now also seeing G2 as a powerful platform to validate their solutions and to also drive more brand awareness. And so I think I think that's probably been the biggest driver is that you know, the industry is growing, and I think we've established ourselves as the leading site to go to to discover software.
1: Part of the last two years, we, you know, with COVID around, was people working from home. Do you see this as something that is about to disappear in the near future, or do you see this phenomena continuing with us for a longer period?
2: I think it's going to continue, and I'm still working from home. Are you as well?
1: No, actually, I'm I'm at the office.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it looks very nice. Yeah, could also be a home office behind <laughs> you. But uh, but I think and you know I don't know what what Amdocs is doing but at G two we have said we're going to continue hybrid if you will you know giving employees a choice and I think also earlier we talked about retention but my fear is if we don't give our employees a choice they will find other employers that do in tech you know because I think that the work from anywhere I think we proved it was productive certainly at G two we got more productive more efficient even during the pandemic and so I think certainly in tech I think it will remain part of it. And I think we, like everyone else, are still trying to figure out, hey, what's the right person that's cadence of meeting in person? Because I think some of that is still needed because to really get to know your peers, to really build bonds, culture. I still think it's important to get together periodically, but I think that's more what we're doing. And I think that's what I see most of the entrepreneurs I talk to now. They're almost all virtual because I think we all started hiring people anywhere. And now you really don't want to roll that back
1: yeah, fully agree. You've mentioned several times software is eating is eating the world, which I agree. But this also brings another phenomena, which is the rising costs of software people. True. Which, mind you, no one is listening. You know, are killing uh, are are killing every company I'm speaking to are finding it harder and harder to keep up with the crazy race of of running uh, after you know, be it engineers or AI experts or DevOps or what have you. So what's your thoughts around those?
2: Well, I think overall, you're right. I mean, there's a tremendous demand for tech talent. We're struggling. We're behind on hiring engineers, as are most people. I do think one positive is working from anywhere, but we do have engineers all around the world now. You know, we have engineers, obviously, in the U.S. where we started, but also we have engineers in India, Ukraine. Uh, obviously, very sad what's happening there now, but... You know, we're starting higher hire engineers in Ireland. So I think that's one advantage is that many great engineers in Israel, right? But I think now you can truly source talent everywhere, which I think is an advantage. I mean, the downside is everyone can do it, right? So everyone around the world is not competing for the same engineers. But I do think the pool is growing because I think also young people, and I know, you know, at MIT, computer science is, is the number one major. I think even at Stanford, which I remember 20 years ago, more people would study liberal arts, but now I think even at the top universities in the US, Stanford, Harvard, computer science has become the number one major. And I remember when I was at MIT back in the early 90s, frankly, nobody at Harvard studied engineering or computer science. There's like 1%. And if they did want to take those classes, they had to come to MIT. And now all of a sudden, it's their number one major. And so I do think globally, the talent pool keeps growing. And, and I think it's a wonderful thing yeah, because I think it's tremendous careers people can build. and. And so while short-term there's a shortage, I do think globally, long-term, more and more young people are going in engineering, computer science. And so I think the talent will will come.
1: Interesting perspective. I know that while, you know, CEOing G2, you're also are heavily engaged with other projects of yours, such as uh, 3Kit and and Logic.io. Can can you share how can you do so many things at, at, at the same time?
2: and i think it's mainly because i'm not doing most of the doing you know but we've built what we call our entrepreneurial family and so for example logic io is being built by chris Schutz. he's the ceo there and yes i'm on the board chairman and an investor but he's really building the company day to day and chris was my co-founder at big machines and he stayed on at oracle for a long time you know running their cpu business and i think what we love doing is building the next gen you know the next gen technology and frankly we thought that and we'd actually, in parallel g GT, built another company, Steelbrick, which was another CPQ company. Now it's Salesforce, CPQ, Salesforce Revenue Cloud. So we built two of those companies already, and we just thought it could still be done much better. And I think that's the cool thing about our industry. And I think, And as a founder, you get frustrated, you kind of get locked into legacy architecture after a few years. And then you're always like, oh, wow, I wish I could start from scratch. Because you could architect it so much better with the new you know, infrastructure, the cloud, the AI tools that are out there. And so, the, yeah, that's why we love doing it, but it's really having this entrepreneurial family. 3Kit is also inspired by our prior CPT companies, but that's really all about visual configuration, visual selling, and it's using 3D AR technology. Frankly, that didn't exist a few years ago. So I remember when we were building our first company, Big Machines, also a lot of our customers wanted to visualize those products, like Rolls-Royce had talked about their turbine, and their dream would have been as a customers configuring that turbine, can they visually see what's happening? And frankly, 10 years ago, you could do it, but it was like clunky browser plugins. The performance was horrible. The experience was horrible. So while we demo it, we then discourage our customers from actually deploying it. And so now we're like, wow, you can do it in real time in the browser and a mobile device. And you know the AR now, Google, Apple are supporting it. So the technologies keep coming. And as entrepreneurs... We love seizing the latest and then really delivering that customer experience. Frankly, we probably wish we could have delivered 10 years ago, you know, but the technology wasn't there. And I think the best way to do that uptime in tech. You start a new company because then you can start from scratch and you can kind of leapfrog the incumbents.
1: And how do you keep yourself, you know, in touch with those companies? Just, you know, board meetings or, or something else?
2: And we definitely have the, the board structure, especially, you know, we usually bring in professional outside investors, VCs, and obviously they expect that. And I think it's helpful to have the formal cadence but I think it's much more my entrepreneurs are my friends, you know, and so we text, call, Slack each other. Kind of, it's more ad hoc. You have more experience being a CEO now than some of my co founders. So they ask me questions Hey, how would you handle this? And, you know, and then especially where I also love helping is just helping them connect to customers, partners, investors. And that's one of the advantage now, having been in this industry, you know, over 20 plus years, I make a lot of friends, right, uh, amongst other entrepreneurs, software companies, investors. And then, you know, I enjoy just connecting people and, and that can help them go faster if they can get right to the right person. Nice.
1: Now, I'd like to pick your brain a bit about your history in the sense of uh, not uh, necessarily all the moments are glorious and, and not always you're, you're achieving you know, your target. Can you share some of the lowlights in your career?
2: Yes. And especially I experienced them the most during my first company, Big Machines, and as I mentioned, we started Big Machines still at the beginning of 2000, which was that euphoric.com era. And so my first year, I was able to raise $20 million of venture capital. And really, we were just a bunch of young, smart kids. And hindsight, we didn't really know what we're doing. But for a while, investors, the internet was brand new. So they thought, wow, let's back young, coolest kids. And that was great, right? And then we also got the advice. I remember our first angel investor at Big Machines was John Scully. You might remember him. He was sort of famous, infamous as the man that took over Apple and fired Steve Jobs. And he was our first investor. And I think the advice we got from him and others was like, hey, just think about how you can go public in a year. Cause that was like the dot-com ethos. And and then I kind of learned the hard way, like it takes way more than a year to build a good business software product. And frankly, then by 2001, the bubble had burst. And I remember we were trying to go out, raise money in 2001 and frankly we couldn't. And then that kind of nuclear winter in tech continued, you know, 9-11 happened. And we were targeting manufacturers. They weren't investing in anything, and frankly, they were very skeptical on the internet. because you know, I remember 2001, 2002, we call on manufacturers, say, "Hey, we have this amazing online CPQ software." They'd say, "Well, the internet was a fad, you know." And, and thank you, but you know, you're now a, you're going to be a dot bomb. You're going out of business. So it was nice meeting with you, but there's no way we were buying your software. And so we went through really hard time, where I think my business plan said, you know, we're going to sign up. I don't know, 40 customers in 2001, I think we actually signed up two, And so by 2003, we were almost bankrupt. You know, we burned through 19 million. We only had a million dollars left in the bank and we only had about a dozen customers. And then I think Chris and I, my co-founder, we had kind of called our come to Jesus meeting, but it's like, oh, what do we do? You know, we only have a million dollars left. Do we just give that back and go try to find jobs as engineers, you know, or, or do we try to keep going? and we did decide to keep going and i think what gave us hope was the dozen early adopters we had manufacturers they were they were having success so we thought okay eventually the world's going to come around to what today you call saas for cloud and if we can persevere you know the customers are getting the value they're able to generate quotes much quicker online to have mistake proof orders and so the technology is working it's just not being adopted yet and uh, but we had to make the painful decision we had to cut the, back the team from 70 to 20 people so we had to let go of a lot of great people because we also realized we can't raise more money. So we had to shift. We came up with a plan. Hey, with this million dollars, we have to get cash flow positive. And luckily we pulled that off. And about a year later, by cutting back the expenses and we kept selling, we were able to get cash flow positive. And then we persevered. And eventually 2007 was our turning point. We partnered with Mark Benioff and Salesforce and we became one of their very early partners. And as Salesforce moved up market and they started competing with Siebel and Oracle, a lot of their customers said, "Hey, we need more than just your basic CRM. We also need sales configuration, sales quoting tools, and then Salesforce needed a partner like big machines. And I remember' big customers like Rico, you know, which was selling big copiers or multifunction printing units. all of a sudden Salesforce had to have a partner like us, and then we were lucky we grew with them, and from two thousand seven until Oracle bought us, we had actually had really good growth, you know but it was it was a very tough time because I remember just first two years I was just full of fear and anxiety and my father had become one of my first investors and I thought I was going to lose his money. I'd recruited my best friends from MIT, so I thought I was going to ruin their careers. And I also had my wife and I had our first kids at home and it just felt like a horribly anxious time and kind of overwhelming. But in hindsight, we learned a lot then, but it was, it was a very hard time to get through.
1: There are many entrepreneurs that, you know, for, for them, the journey, the journey that you've just described is kind of... Uh too far away in the sense that people believe that it's very easy now to, to raise a lot of money and to become a unicorn immediately. Can you share what not to do? What are the things that you suggest them to uh, to avoid if they want to succeed? Not necessarily to become a unicorn, no one is a profit, but uh, what, what are the obstacles or the things that, uh, from your experience, they should avoid?
2: And I think what I, you know, I did wrong in my first company, Big Machines, and this is probably more after you can raise your initial money, but frankly, I tried to go too fast before we really had product market fit. And I think what we did well during those years is just really focusing on the customer. And I think what I advise startups is to go very narrow, you know, at the beginning. And I think a lot of startup pitches are like, oh, I have a huge TAM, I'm going to sell to everybody. I actually think that's exactly the wrong answer. You know, pick up very much a niche because there's already 100,000 software apps. So I think pick, you know, one use case, one industry, do that better than anyone. And just at the beginning, just focus, you know, make sure your first five, 10 customers are really successful solving that one problem better than anyone else. And then scale from there. Because once you solve that problem really well, you see and feel the product market fit. Because if you can solve it really well for 10 companies, and this is probably more true in B2B. I've never built a consumer company, but I think in B2B, if you really focus on your customers, your first handful of customers, make sure you're vision comes to life, you're solving some unique problem better than anyone else in the world, and it's a narrow problem, then you can build on that. So I think at the beginning, more focus on customers and defining your market more narrowly is, I think, the, the really smart thing to do that I, that I kind of only, only learned the hard way.
1: Tell me a bit about work-life balance. You've mentioned it several times during our uh... Dialogue today, you've mentioned the tough moments, but also the happy moments. How do you make sure that you uh, balance between work and life?
2: It's something I'm still working on, you know, and I do. I'm lucky I have a wife now over 20 years and she's been through all these companies with me. And we have three kids now. You know, they're teenagers. I think certainly having a family, it just helps in itself, you know, because it gives you a good reason to make sure you go have dinner with your family, see your wife and kids. So I think just having a family has been, I think, in itself balancing. And the other thing I mentioned, my first company, I was so full of anxiety and fear and I think it felt depressing a lot of the time. I started working with a coach and the coach I started working with, I met him through other entrepreneurs, but his name was Jim Dethmer and He was a conscious leadership coach. The idea of conscious leadership is very much around self-awareness and just becoming more self-aware of your feelings, your anxiety, and even meditating. And breathing, and and I have found now working with a coach on that, I have been able to, you know, I think deal with the anxiety, the stress, the failures much better, so that I can, you know, enjoy the journey much more with my team. And I do think building any company, right, there are always a lot of ups and downs. And as an entrepreneur, it, it becomes somewhat addictive, because you, know, you feel these tremendous highs when you win a new customer or when you announce a funding round or you, know, you make a great hire. But then you also have all these lows when you lose a customer one of your value team members quits, you miss a quarter. I mean, there's also so many lows. I think learning to manage your own emotion, for me, using conscious leadership, working on awareness has been a wonderful tool.
1: I assume before meeting him, you were always breathing. Yes. It's not something that he uh, taught you. In the sense of calming yourself or uh, mindfulness, how would you define it? Something like, Being able to detach yourself or being able to control your emotions or neither?
2: And I don't think you can control your emotions. I think to more, it's like feel your emotions, accept them. So for me, it's more accepting what is and actually becoming more aware of your feelings. And I think like a lot of engineers, I was very much in my mind and very attached to my thoughts and thinking and solving all problems very analytically. I think most engineers have minds that are good at that and probably most people in tech do. But I think what I was missing is that awareness of my feelings and emotions. And frankly, I was trying to suppress them, you know, trying to suppress my fear, my anger. And then frankly, I think what I've learned from my coach is when you suppress your emotions, they're a bit like a wave of energy. And if you, you know keep them in a tunnel, they can never dissipate. You know, whereas if you accept your feelings, feel them move on, then almost any feeling, whether it's joy, sadness, anger, will dissipate within 60 seconds. And so I think that to me has been the big lesson actually feel more and feel it in the moment.
1: Out of curiosity, does it mean that you may find yourself shouting at people, or laughing more, or, or I don't know, bursting in, in uh, flames in in a, in a meeting? What does it mean?
2: I do think. Well, certainly, hopefully, it means more laughter. And I do think. I mean, what I'm working on with my coaches, and I do have a lot of anger, but I think that. Yeah, you know, what I'm working on is don't yell at someone, just feel the anger inside you, right? It can feel like heat and sweat. And I think we all feel it, right? And if you become aware of those physical feelings and maybe even describe it, you know, to your team being like, oh, I'm feeling really hot right now. I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling anger, but don't direct it at the other person, you know, because that feeling is about you. And then once you can get past that, then you can say to your team, hey, here's, my story on why I think I felt angry and here's what I want you to do, but you can get back to being constructive.
1: You, you've mentioned peak as as the, the culture and values that you are. Is consciousness part of them?
2: Uh, yes. You know, because I think also to be at our human peak, I do think you know, when we're more self-aware, more conscious, I think we can be better, better human beings. But the peak framework for business was developed by an entrepreneur, Chip Conley. And he was most recently the head of hospitality for Airbnb, but he'd also started his own hotel chain, de Vivre. And he also went through a lot of struggles, like a lot of entrepreneurs. I think I remember during the 08, 09 crash, his hotel chain almost went bankrupt. Yeah, because It was all in the Bay Area and yeah, it all went from boom to bust overnight. And so he also had a lot of anxiety as an entrepreneur, but I think he felt what got him through that was he had developed a peak culture at his hotel chain. And then he wrote this whole book, Applying Maslow's hierarchy of need to business. And I think in a Maslow hierarchy, you know, for kind of human living, but he applied it to business. And one of the examples for employees, you know, he says the peak, the basic, the level of necessity for any employees pay and compensation. You know, and obviously, most of us in tech were able to provide that to our employees, you know, provide them good compensation so they can take care of themselves, and their families. But he said that's really only the basic level. You know, the next level is recognition. And that we've recognized our employees' unique talents and gifts, and I think we all love that, right? If our boss like recognizes, wow, that was amazing product and code you shipped. Thank you, and yeah. You know, so I think that that's kind of the next level. And then you said the ultimate level though, is if employees can really find meaning in their work. You know, if they have a greater sense of purpose that goes beyond even making money, being recognized for their professional talents, but they really believe and are connected to how their company can really make the world better. That's how you really get inspired employees. That is our ultimate aim at at G2.
1: This is great. How do you relax yourself? Do you have hobbies? Take long Uh, vacations? uh, Yes, certainly. And
2: during the pandemic, we actually moved here to Colorado because I've always loved mountains and mountain biking, skiing, and being outdoors. And my whole family loves that as well. Certainly, I think getting to nature outdoors, working out, I also feel like it relieves the stress and anxiety, you know, from work. And uh, so that's you know, probably my, my main hobby. And, and, and like I said, if I can, you know, I love doing it with my uh, my kids. Although my teenage boys now they've sadly now they uh, they pull way ahead of me on the bike. <laughs> but I enjoy getting outdoors and you know, especially with family.
1: This is uh, one of nature's uh, you know things. Kids will outrun you uh, at a certain point. Yes,
2: and as a parent it's, it's kind of a mixed emotion, right? Where as a parent, you're very proud, but then you know kind of your my, my ego says oh wow i I wish I could still, uh, still keep up with them
1: <laughs> so uh so true there there are listeners that you've shared with them, you know the the don'ts what are the do's that you think let's say the the top two lessons that you believe entrepreneurs need to follow if if they want to succeed. You've mentioned, you know, be very focused on a domain and make sure that you are the best in this very niche as a first first step. Are there other lessons that you'd like to share?
2: Yes, I think to persevere, and most entrepreneurs go through hard times, you know, so I think to persevere, really having a greater purpose, really having a vision, you know, founding vision for your company, something you really care about. And I do think it's really important to start a company where you're really solving a problem like you care so deeply about that, you know, you're willing to go through really hard times to achieve it and to never give up. And then obviously some of our, you know, greatest entrepreneurs, it's, you know, like Elon Musk his you know, vision to make the human species multiplanetary to build a human colony on Mars, but you can tell he really believes it. And I have read, you know, Elon's biography and in 2008, nine, I mean, he was almost bankrupt, right? Tesla was failing, SpaceX, their first three rockets didn't launch. And frankly, he was down to like, hey, if my fourth rocket doesn't launch, he was going to be bankrupt. And so I think all entrepreneurs go through those moments. But I think with him, you can tell, and I've never met him, but you can feel his passion. That's how he persevered. And I do think all the great entrepreneurs, they have some greater purpose, some greater vision that you know they're kind of metaphorically willing to die for. That's really important is that you have that for your vision, for your company, so that you know, you will keep going, you will persevere. And I do believe with that, ultimately, you can usually find a way to succeed.
1: Do you see, you know, everybody speaks, this is the unicorn season of ours, or future of tech. Do you see unicorn as quote unquote, the end game or just a step into uh, something bigger?
2: It's definitely just a step. And at G2, we were lucky to become a unicorn last year. I mean, it was a milestone I wanted to achieve. But I think the important thing, it gave $157 million in extra capital. We got a great new investor, Premier, and now we have their network behind us. So we can you know, better realize our vision of building the place you go for software. But I also think I love the Jeff Bezos, the Amazon philosophy. It's always day one. And I think they have that build into their values. And I think as an entrepreneur, as a company, that's the only way to think. It's always day one. And now that we have these wonderful resources, that's what becoming a unicorn does for you. Now, what are we going to do with it, right? And you can build faster to realizing your vision, to building the company with the culture you want. And I think last year, I think there's now over a thousand unicorns, but it's still pretty rare, as you said. I think you know, when we announced that we did some research, I think it's only one in 20,000 startups that gets there. We looked it up. I think the odds of getting hit by lightning, at least in the US, are one in 17,000. Oh, your odds of getting hit by lightning are slightly higher than becoming a unicorn. So it is a milestone to be proud of, but it is just, you know, it's just a step along the journey.
1: Luckily, those two are not uh, need to be both met in order to become a unicorn. Yeah,
2: I hope I don't. Yeah, I hope I don't experience the, uh, the lightning strike. <laughs>
1: well, it was a pleasure uh, chatting to you. I really enjoyed the time. I want to thank you for joining me and I hope seeing
2: you face to face shortly. Likely, Avashai, Thank you so much for hosting me and enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn.